0: This September marks one decade since the mass shooting at the Washington Navy Yard. The tragedy ultimately became a catalyst in changing how the government manages potential security risks from its employees and contractors. For more, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me now. Justin, how are we today?
1: Hey, good, Eric. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well as well. So there have been remembrances and memorials over this past week as we hit the 10-year anniversary of the shooting. Remind us what happened on that day and how it may have led to some change.
1: Sure. So on September 16th, 2013, Navy IT contractor Aaron Alexis shot and killed 12 civilian and contractor employees at Naval Sea Systems Command headquarters at the Washington Navy Yard. He also wounded four others before he was killed by law enforcement, and this was obviously a a, a major and shocking tragedy, you know, for Washington D.C. and for the Navy and for the federal government writ large, and you you know it it led to a lot of reviews uh, of what exactly happened here. Alexis was a former Navy reservist who held a secret security clearance, and he had access to NAVSEA headquarters through his job as a Navy IT contractor. And ultimately, a Pentagon review found that this incident could have been prevented if the Navy and Alexis's employer at the time had evaluated and reported previous arrests involving firearms, as well as some other erratic and alarming behavior in the years and months leading up to the shooting. Uh, Terrence McGowan is a security professional for the Navy. He narrowly escaped the shooting and actually shared his harrowing experience, really, from that day during a a webinar last week hosted by the Defense Department. And McGowan, you know, pointed to how there have been a lot of changes made in the personnel security field since that day.
2: Now we have continuous evaluation. We have continuous vetting. We have automatic checks. We're checking your interaction with law enforcement and your credit on a daily basis. All of this is because of the Aaron Alexis situation where there were red flags Throughout his career in the Navy and as a contractor, and no one took up those opportunities.
1: And again, that's Terrence McGowan, a Navy security specialist who is sharing his experiences and thoughts on the, the Navy yard shooting from 10 years ago.
0: And how did this incident spur on the advent of continuous vetting? And now that's a big term that pretty much everybody knows.
1: Yeah, that's right. McGowan pointed at that in his comments. You know, continuous vetting is really the system of automated records checks, like uh, you know, checking your, your credit history or your potential criminal history on, on a really a continuous basis, a daily and weekly basis. This system seems like it's been around for a while. It's really only been around for a few years for security clearance holders. And it really came out of out of this Aaron Alexis shooting. Because the incident really highlighted this gap in DOD's security clearance process, where once an individual has gone through an initial background investigation and received a security clearance, in the past, that person would not have been investigated again for at least another five years. And so really the system was reliant on either the person self-reporting a potential issue to a security officer or having someone else report an issue to a security office. In those in intervening years between investigations, and as I point, as we we talked about earlier, there were multiple instances where Alexis was either arrested or had run-ins with law enforcement, uh, where you know a system like that could have potentially tipped off investigators to something going on in his background. And so, what happened in is this review that the Pentagon did of the Aaron Alexis situation recommended. That DOD moved to continuous evaluation, now called continuous vetting, on an enterprise level. It was kind of an idea at the time. And and what happened was, over the last five or so years, nearly all four million DOD clearance holders are now enrolled in continuous evaluation. And so the Aaron Alexis case and the investigation that happened afterward was one of the big things that really pushed that along. I spoke with Charlie Sowell. He's a former uh, D- Director of National Intelligence Advisor. He covered, watches these security clearance issues closely, and he talked about how this this whole incident was really a wake-up call that helped spur things along like continuous evaluation.
3: Continuous vetting was an idea back in the days of Alexis. There were certainly some DOD systems that were in place that were performing continuous evaluation, continuous vetting, but really today, how many people that have clearances who are enrolled in continuous vetting today? It's a game changer. So when you look at the ability of the government to identify problems before they snowball a whole different level, I think that's promising as well.
1: And again, that's Charlie Sowell, a former director of National Intelligence Advisor.
0: We're speaking with Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday about the 10th anniversary of the Navy Yard shooting. So, Justin, what other recommendations from the review have come to fruition? This can't be the only security idea that was born from this incident.
1: Yeah, one of the other big ones was the creation of a DOD Insider Threat Management Analysis Center. It's called the DITMAC. And this center was one of the recommendations that came from the Pentagon's big review of the Navy Yard shooting in the aftermath. And really what what it's intended to be and what what it is now is the central area where a lot of insider threat incidents are reported and then analyzed for potential trends, potential issues that might need to be taken on further action. Because in the Aaron Alexis case, there were multiple incidents where Either the Navy knew about something or his employer knew about something and no one seemed to be able to put together the pieces that there might have been a larger issue at play here with Aaron Alexis in, in the year and in, in basically over the course of his adult life with, you know, multiple firearms related issues and arrests with, you know, potentially hearing voices and, and, and psycho potential psychological issues. And so this the center, of this DITMAC is really intended to be the central point where insider threat information is reported and analyzed, and then, you know, analysts there can can kind of take that information into account and recommend, you know, follow-up actions accordingly. So that's that's another thing that was created after the Navy Yard shooting.
0: Even with all of those new protocols, insider threats are still at the top of the list when you talk to security personnel about their biggest fears. and so, what are some of those bigger challenges that remain when it comes to insider threats
1: yeah there, there's a few. Uh, one is that you know this new center uh, that that I just mentioned uh, it, it relies on reporting really from the lower level you know DoD organizations and military services. Uh, And what's been found is that a lot of those those services and and DOD organizations are not reporting as often as they need to up to the center. There is a redacted September 2022 DOD Inspector General report that found that there was not consistent reporting to the DITMAC. The Navy, for instance, did not report 26 incidents to the center over about a nine month period that involved things like murder, rape, kidnapping, aggravated assault. Robbery and soliciting sexual conduct with a minor. That's according to the IG report. And in some cases, it took organizations as long as two years to report information to the center. So there's a lag there as well. Another big issue is that it's cha- it's a challenge to convince employees to report potentially concerning behavior uh, of their colleagues to a security office. Uh, you know, it feels like you're telling on someone, of course, and, and it's Insider Threat Awareness Month Every September is Insider Threat Awareness Month. It's a government-sponsored event where these organizations that are in charge of insider threat, really the message is, you know, if you see something, say something. This year's theme is bystander engagement. And so they're really still banging the drum on getting folks to, you know, report potentially concerning behavior. Finally, technology continues to be a challenge. We talked about continuous vetting and how that's really taken hold But the system itself is still kind of in in the early stages. There's only a limited amount of information that it can pull upon. And the IT system behind the whole process, the the next generation background investigation system, is still being developed. And the GAO recently reported on challenges associated with that system, cost and schedule overruns. So, you know, I I talked to to Charlie Sowell about that as well. Here's what he had to say.
3: I wonder if some of the revolutionary technology changes that you need to better aggregate and analyze relevant information and serve up information to adjudicators and investigators. I wonder if we're going to be able to implement any of that anytime soon. And that's a big hindrance to the process.
1: And again, that's Charlie Sowell. He's former advisor to the Director of National Intelligence.
0: Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thank you so much for all of your coverage on this. Absolutely. Thanks, Eric. All And you can find more of Justin's reporting at federalnewsnetwork.com.
1: Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell, retired Army Major General Tammy Smith felt for the first time that she could lead her team authentically. Smith, a longtime leader... And one of the military's highest ranking openly gay officers joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share her perspective on collaborative and genuine leadership.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by retired U.S. Army Major General Tammy Smith. Major General Smith, welcome, and thank you for joining me.
4: Shane, it's great to talk to you this morning.
2: Your career in the military spans more than 30 years. Was there ever a moment or point in your career that changed your trajectory, and and what was that?
4: I have a very unique one that occurred that did change my trajectory in many ways, and that is at my about 25th year of service, um, the law known as Don't Ask, Don't Tell that prohibited people who identified as gay from serving in the military, that was repealed and now you could be open in the military. And soon after that happened, I married Tracy, my wife, and I was also notified I'd been selected for promotion to Brigadier General. And at that time, there had been no general or admiral who had come out or identified their family in any way that you would, you would know that they were gay. And so just by timing, I ended up being the first openly gay general in the U.S. military. And what changed for me in that is I still had all the things that I had to do, of course, as a general, which was a lot of hard work that went into that. But for the first time in my life, I was able to lead authentically. 25 years, I had compartmentalized a part of me, and I had hidden things, and I had not been my full self at work. And I had not been my full self with my coworkers. And the repeal of that law and the opportunity then to be the sort of LGBTQ champion in the Department of Defense as a senior leader, what that did is it got me closer to my authentic leadership style and my authentic self because I was more comfortable in my own skin and I wasn't looking over my shoulder at all times thinking that I might have said something that would reveal what my true life was and then lead to my dismissal from the military. Having that weight off of my shoulders, not having to hide who I was at work, made me such a better leader than I had been in the 25 years that I had served previously.
2: It's fascinating to hear your story about that because I was alive during all that and followed it as well. It's a a wonderful thing. Your career included a lot of firsts. You were the first female general officer, as you said, um, to serve in the 8th Army headquarters level position. Uh, You already talked about being um, the first LGBTQ general and flag officer. How does being first, how did that influence your leadership style?
4: I was first in a lot of places through no fault of my own. Um, by virtue of having joined the military in the 80s when there weren't a lot of women who were choosing that as a career path. So there were many things, even as a young person, where I would show up and I would be the only woman who was in that particular unit or doing that particular type of training. And what you get as a first is you f- you w- th- assume this mantle of being a role model for... I don't know if it's your group or yourself. And in these roles of first, I would have to say that complete competence was always expected because you were elevated a bit and people noticed you more because they knew you as the first. And so you you just gained extra attention in that. But that, that attention brought a great deal of responsibility.
2: And you've said in the past that your interest in leadership dates all the way back to high school when you first joined future farmers of america and how did that early education that organization change your path later in life
4: future farmers of america well it's certainly to teach people about agriculture but it's also it teaches people to be leaders so that in the agricultural world people entering into that as an industry have the skills uh, to be leaders in that world in I loved learning about speaking. I loved learning about being on a team. There were many things that I learned about leadership early in high school through FFA that suited me well. They are skills that I used all the way up through two-star general, and one of the one that jumps out the most at me is communication. I mean, we already talked about how it's important to be competent. But sometimes your confidence comes from the presence that you project. And a lot of that presence comes from how you are able to communicate. So in times when I had uncertainty, I could convey confidence through my communication skills in a way that would get me through some ambiguity and things would turn out all right. But those skills go back. Those are base skills that I learned way back in high school and through my association with FFA.
2: It's really great and refreshing to hear you meld those two concepts of confidence and competence, because really both are required for um, expansion as a professional, but also into leadership roles.
4: I think so, because if if you're the leader in the role, people want to trust, and so your competence certainly informs a bit of that trust your ability to communicate that and to speak to your team in a language that your team understands and to be able to adjust for that, I think that that informs that trust a great deal, which is what produces the results, is the trust within the team.
2: Excellent. Excellent. Uh, what's one piece of advice that you would go back and tell yourself if you were starting uh, again in your career?
4: When I started my career, of course, well, I certainly had some skills. I I wasn't a rounded, informed, wise leader of any sort. And I think that people have a leadership style that suits their personality uh, until they learn more skills. And for me, I was a collaborative leader. And I always have been a collaborative leader, but right from the beginning about what I would tell myself to do differently. Sometimes when you are a young leader with a team with direct responsibility and direct reports... Sometimes collaborative leadership feels to the team like you can't make a decision. Sometimes at that level of leadership, what the team needs is for you to just tell them what you want done by what time. And so I'm going to say that I wasn't as effective as a younger leader in those situations where I was in these direct leadership roles because my tendency towards collaboration um, frustrated the team a bit. But when we jump ahead 25, 30 years, collaboration and the willingness to take a little bit more time with decisions that impact things on a longer timeline, those are exactly the skills that you need. So I would tell my younger self, be a little bit more direct, have a bit more awareness of where you are in the structure of the organization and the timelines that you're working in, and don't be afraid to be a little bit more direct um, as a young leader, even if your natural style is a bit more collaborative, that,
2: that is excellent. And as somebody who's looked at and studied leadership over the years, there are many different leadership styles. Everything, uh, many different formally studied leadership styles, <clears throat> and collaboration, situational. I, I I I love how you put it in context. It's not that one is good or bad, but depending upon your role and where you are in your career and those who uh, work for and with you. Yeah. You can change to meet you, the needs.
4: You definitely can and the whole timeline is, is important when you are choosing your leadership style to get the results that you want because it's all of course results driven. And in some cases and this was true in military leadership and true in in many places is sometimes the urgency of the decision doesn't allow for the collaboration because a missile is coming in, <laughs> or you know something something is timed in, in a financial type of way, and you have to hit a particular timing point. And so you've, you've got to make these decisions quickly. But sometimes making quick decisions, I, I talk often that it's easy to make a decision. It's harder to make a good decision. And you have to take into consideration the timeline that your decision is going to impact, and that will influence the style of leadership that you choose to come to that decision point, if you can kind of follow my logic there.
2: I think it's fascinating. And, and maybe what you're also saying is that part of leadership, um, a, a never-to-be-forgotten dynamic is, is judgment. You know, there's a judgment component to all of this. You just mentioned you're, you're um, making decisions using judgment as far as what's the best leadership role for this moment, for this decision.
4: Yeah, I think there is a lot of judgment in that, and it goes back to that quest for competence because as your skills improve, your judgment will improve because you've you've peeked around the corner a little bit. You've been exposed to more things, and you are able to exercise judgment in a way that would have been impossible when I first started. Um, I think that that experience certainly informs judgment, which is why sometimes it, when you're looking at somebody at the executive level, it looks so easy for them. You know, They see the big pieces earlier. That's because for probably 30 or 40 years they've been looking at all the little pieces, and in some of this then their judgment becomes almost intuitive to them because of the experience that they had gathered over that time frame.
2: Perfect. Is there a figure either from your personal life or maybe in history that has been an inspiration, that has inspired your leadership style?
4: It's somebody who no one has probably heard of, and that's my brigade commander, Colonel Pullen, who I was exposed to early in my career as an officer. He was a Vietnam veteran, and in his role as brigade commander, what he wanted to teach all of us was attention to detail for consequential decision-making. And so he would ask very specific questions, such as when you get to the rifle range and you offload the buses, which side of the bus are the soldiers going to come off of? Because then that was whether or not you might need a road guard to cross the road over to the range and that sort of thing. But what he would tell us is that leaders will make life-and-death decisions based on the information that you provide them. So make sure that your information is correct when you provide it to them. And that stuck with me throughout my career, is that when I was either informing a decision maker, or if I was the decision maker, the question from Colonel Pullen always came up, is like, is that what you think, or is that what you know? Tell me how you know it meaning did you see it, did you touch it, did you read the same report, and, and just to understand that, especially in the military, that line of work, that the decisions that are often made are, are literally life and death types of decisions.
2: Excellent. Excellent advice. Um, General Tammy Smith, it's been an honor and a privilege to meet you and talk with you and, and listen to you share uh, your leadership journey with us. Thank you very much for your time.
4: It's great to talk to you. Thanks.
2: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we will talk to you next time on Lessons in Leadership podcast. Find the full podcast and
1: future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.